0: Well, what are some lessons that we can learn from the game of Jenga? You know, Dr. Gottman, we've been looking at some of his research because he did one of the first studies of relationships and what really works and what are the relationship topplers, the things that really destroy relationships. They studied over 3,000 couples and they are able to predict divorce and disillusionment of relationships with a 91% accuracy based on the research they did. Now, what's interesting is they found four particular factors that can actually come against the foundation of your relationship. But what they were struck by is what it wasn't. The factors it wasn't related to weren't the things that came naturally. In fact, as a a pastor working with couples and our pastoral staff over the years, he as a counselor said the go-to advice that most marriage counselors give was incredibly ineffective, which explains a lot of wasted money that all of us have had, doesn't it? Because they teach active listening skills, which is a good skill. That's the ability to identify the other person, what are you feeling and why. But he said by the time somebody comes to counseling, the level of emotional hurt and pain that's been built up in the two people, it's hard for you to hear the other person criticizing about you and be able to say, so it sounds like you're angry because you think I'm a schlub. It's just hard to do that. He likened it to turning to your counselor In the middle of a counseling session, say, hey, stop talking about me. I want to talk about you. I think you are doing a bad job as a counselor. I think you are charging me too much. I think that you are wasting my time. And watch the blood pressure of your counselor go up. It's easy when you're helping somebody objectively to work through what they're feeling and why. But when you're on the receiving end of that, it's very hard to perform the emotional and intellectual gymnastics to stay focused when you feel under attack. So with that, he said, if that doesn't work, even though it's a good skill, but if it ultimately is not helping couples and helping relationships, what can we do? He noticed that over a 40-year period of time, the divorce rate of the couples he studied was 67%. He also noticed the incredible health challenges to being in a bad relationship. Your blood pressure went up, all kinds of health risks. And he said, we've got to do something to give real tangible skills. To help people, whether it's a relationship with your son, your daughter, a friend, a spouse. How can we figure out what destroys or topples relationships and how do you really rebuild them? So the book, The Game of Jenga, if you've never played it before, actually has uh, three mottos. And the mottos are pull it, stack it, but don't topple it. And actually it's um, don't pull them, do stack them, and don't topple them. So we're going to look today at four topplers and two ways to stack them to rebuild relationships. And my hope is if you have a hurting relationship in your life, this will give you some very practical skills to bring some healing. Secondly, you're going to find out that there's actually some real things that might be underneath the surface of your relationships that are causing the problem that you'll be able to identify and say, oh, that's what i got to work on. This is what really matters and really gives the infrastructure to my relationship. The first thing let's look at is how to not pull them, how to not pull out the infrastructure of your relationship. Dr. Gottman looked at several myths what topples relationships? Several of the myths that he looked at. Number one was I married the wrong person. Or I hired the wrong person. They just got neurosis. Right? They just got this quirk. And certainly there are exceptions to the rule. But more times than not, Dr. Gottman said, all everybody ever studied had quirks. Everyone ever studied had some kind of neurosis. So if you give up on one relationship to find somebody else, you're just going to find a new neurosis. And folks with, with high-functioning, Happy, satisfaction relationships didn't necessarily have no quirks. The second thing they discovered is that a myth was that the secret to marriage, the secret to a relationship stability, is common interests. But he said he found that wasn't true as well. It was whether or not you and your spouse, you and your son, you and your daughter enjoyed and participated in those common interests, not just whether or not you had them. Another common misconception was the idea that men are not built for marriage. Diaz said that recently. And they said that wasn't true at all. Percentages over the studies of those years found that men and women both wanted companionship, intimacy, and a deep relationship equally. And the last myth I thought was very interesting is many people thought that the way you have a successful, well-built relationship that that can't fall over is through what they called reciprocity. Apparently they can say it better than I can. Uh, The ability to be reciprocal meaning I do my part and you do your part. He said that was not only not helpful, it was toxic to relationships. And why would that be? Because when you operate on the myth that how our relationship's going to work is I do my part and you do your part, you're always keeping track. I did 3 things last week, you only did 2. Hey, I'm doing, I'm giving, giving, giving. All I ever do around this marriage is give, give, give. And all you do is take, take, take. That the myth of saying we gotta do equal parts ends up destroying the relationship because you become a, a person who keeps track all the time. And you always make yourself look like you're doing more, and you always miss out on what the other person's doing. So what are the four things if it's not those myths? Well, Dr. Gottman was on CNN recently, and he actually described the four pieces the four habits, the four topplers that destroy relationships. Let's watch.
1: You, You say that there are four negative patterns that can predict divorce. The first one is criticism. Take a look at this example.
0: So that's your way of dealing with everything. You don't do it. You don't want to do it, you don't do
2: it. It's like doing your chores. You want, what are you doing to make the chore thing change? You know, like you want, you want that to run differently where they do more chores. What kind of planning have you, and time have you spent fixing it? Or do you just keep telling me you want it to run differently?
1: And why is criticism so dangerous to a relationship? Well, it's it's really uh, a way of fueling the attack. So you state your
2: complaint as an attack on the other person. And what you're going to get back is you're not so perfect either. It's just not constructive. It winds up just... You know, leading to an escalation of the conflict.
1: You say another divorce predictor is contempt. Yeah. I find this one really fascinating. Let's take a look at this tape. Yeah, but a lot of the time
2: I already know what you're going to say. Oh, it'll be all right. Oh, we'll get through it. Oh, make it, it'll be okay. Oh, I love you. i be behind you. So
1: why is that so toxic?
2: because it's really this air of superiority. You need respect in a relationship, and contempt is disrespect. And it's also a predictor of how many infectious illnesses his wife is going to have in the next four years. It erodes the immune system. Wait a minute, what? Really? It erodes the immune system. Contempt
1: (laughs) erodes the immune system? Absolutely. Um, Let's look at the third predictor uh, of divorce is defensiveness in arguments. Take a look. What do you mean? I'm always watching TV I'm
2: working. Can I watch the news? You're always
1: watching TV, and the kids... No, the TV... I can't watch a little bit of TV? Yeah. So, Dr. Gottman, defensiveness, why is that so toxic?
2: People are not taking responsibility for a part of the problem. And when people, when the masters of relationships, instead of being defensive, take responsibility and say, well, so what's your point? I mean, it makes some sense what you're saying. Tell me more. And they take responsibility for even a small part of the problem then, you know, you're kicking around the problem together. You're a team working on this joint problem.
1: And the fourth one, the fourth predictor is is stonewalling. Take a look.
2: Stonewalling is really interesting because when we interview people who stonewall, 85% of our stonewallers in heterosexual couples are guys. And, And what predicts stonewalling is a heart rate above 100 beats a minute. And also, we interview them about what they're thinking. They're really trying not to make it worse. They're saying to themselves, just shut up. You're going to make it worse. How long can she go on like this? She'll burn herself out. Uh, Ten minutes to the game. She can't touch me then. The stonewaller is really trying to calm down and not make it worse. But when you're faced with somebody who's silent like that, you escalate. So it's a very destructive pattern.
0: So here are the four things. You know, it's criticism, but it's an arrogant criticism where, where I wouldn't have done that. I know better than you. It's contempt. It's defensiveness. It's stonewalling. And what happens is that many of us start a relationship with sons, with daughters, with, with new employees, with our spouses. We've got a pretty good infrastructure. We've got a, a tender heart toward one another. But what happens is along the way certain things get pushed out, and they really push against the infrastructure of relationship. And so let's look at that first one is criticism again, it's not just having a complaint. It's really saying, I'm criticizing you in a way that not that we have differences of opinion, but that your way is wrong. In fact, what kind of a moron would even come up with doing it that way or think about doing that way? You're not just less tidy than me. You're an utter slob, name-calling type criticism, contempt. And that's why criticism is often followed by another piece that pulls at the infrastructure of your relationship, and that's contempt. All of a sudden, contempt comes in, and that is, as you saw in the video... Mockery of the other person you're making fun of what they say you're making fun of their repair attempts You're making fun of what they do or how they do it And now it's a superiority that we feel so much better than you that we can actually throw disdain onto the fire And as you watch that video of that guy you're like what a jerk Then I thought I've been that jerk I know you haven't but I know I have And this begins to take away the stability of a relationship and then there's defensiveness And I'm always shocked at how quickly I get defensive. I was on a uh, flight this week, and as I was uh, flying out, this nice older gentleman must have been 20, 30 years older than me. He turned over to me because I was working on my iPad as we were taking off. He looked just like Santa Claus. He turned to me and says, isn't that computer supposed to be off on takeoff? To which my internal dialogue went, you're not my mom. You're not my boss. Why don't you mind your own business, Kris Kringle? For crying out loud, I think I can handle myself. And by the way, the law changed on iPads as long as they're in airplane mode that it's okay to do it. I didn't say any of that. But I was amazed that all that was going on inside me when Santa Claus said, is it okay to have a computer on? We came flying in a couple hours later here to Cincinnati. And I didn't think anything of it. He turns to me and goes, no. now now tell me again what that computer's called because I love my wife and I travel a lot now that we're retired and I'd love to be able to have something that we can play a game even on the takeoff and the the landing and I went oh man look how quickly I got defensive and it really was him genuinely interested in my computer so defensiveness defensiveness presumes that I am never wrong And when you bring up something that I've done wrong, I'm going to bring up a hundred things you've done wrong instead of even considering the possibility that I made a mistake. Then the fourth one that really comes against the infrastructure relationship is stonewalling. Now, as we heard from Dr. Gottman, 85% of stonewallers are men to which you might be tempted to suddenly become contemptuous. That's right! My husband is just a stonewaller. He's the problem. What is wrong with him? Why can't he talk about stuff the way I do? And now you're back to being dislocked. Now, in our relationship, I am the talker. So my wife is more of the stonewaller than I am. And here's one thing I've learned that keeps me from contempt. Dr. Gottman talks about flooding. Flooding is when you're so overwhelmed with emotions that you know you're not going to be able to speak in a way that's constructive. Now, if you're not a stonewaller, which I'm not, you have a tendency to have contempt. Why can't they talk? What is wrong with them? They need these great verbal skills that I have. And I have learned to look at those who, when my wife is sort of trying to calm herself down and not engage, to say, she's actually trying to help, not hurt me. This is actually not something for me to have contempt about. This is something for me to be thankful for. instead of judging her for that, to be able to say, well, you know, listen, sounds like right now we need to take a pause from this. Why don't we circle back? I I do want to get to the bottom of this, but but it sounds like right now we're both flooded. And it's a way in which we can engage with the stonewaller in a way that's about us working together, not me judging that person. Now, Jesus addressed these things 2,000 years ago in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, where he addresses these things that tear up relationships almost With those exact words. Here's what he says as Jesus is talking. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. For whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whenever you're angry without a cause, when you have criticism, and you might say, well, I always have a good cause, Chad. But what happens is that we always see our own cause and we get angry and feel justified. But we don't really see the other person's perspective that they might have a cause or reason for what they do. So Jesus be very careful about about criticism, arrogant criticism that leads to contempt. It's dangerous, he says. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is going to be in danger of judgment themselves. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, and there's that contempt, you fool that you would do this. You fool. And yet don't we find ourselves saying things like that to our kids? That attitude comes out to our nonverbals with employees or friends at times. It's really a sense of not, hey, let's figure out where our differences are. It's you're foolish. And he says that attitude is like hellfire. And what does fire do? It disintegrates things. It burns up good things. That's what Dr. Gottman finds. If you want to burn up the relationships you spent so much time building, so the company you spent so much time building, the best way to destroy it and topple it is to have attitudes of, you fool, and arrogant criticism, defensiveness. you got to work on this, not me. Now, one of the most, most quoted verses in the Bible that I run into as a pastor is, do not judge, right? Do not, the Bible says, do not judge. It's actually not what the Bible says. And in any relationship, it's not you can't ever have a complaint. It's arrogant criticism. The verse that says, do not judge, goes on to say, what this says in the next verse. Jesus talks about a particular type of evaluation, a particular type of judgment, a particular type of interaction with other people. Look what he says. Do not judge, lest you be judged. And then he goes on to say this. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, what happens is when I judge myself, I go, well, sure, but let me tell you the circumstances. When I judge other people, what is wrong with them? When you confront me or something, well, let me tell you, there's some circumstances that sort of led to that. And yeah, I did have a bad attitude, but I also had a bad day. Somebody else has a bad attitude. Well, they ought to get over their bad day. You know what? you got to take responsibility. We have a tendency to give ourselves grace and mercy and benefit the doubt, but we don't mirror that onto others. And that's where this arrogant criticism comes from. We judge others. Unlike we judge ourselves. And so what Jesus is saying is that you want to extend mercy to others the same way you extend it to yourself. You want to get all the facts from others just like you trying to accommodate the facts for yourself. He says this. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? And there's a speck there. You can judge. That's a speck. That's a problem. And not look at the plank in your own eye. Right? right this is what happens. Man, you've got a real problem that you're stonewalling. I can't believe that you didn't listen to that sermon when Chad was speaking and realize you're the problem. And you got this big old plank of contentment in your own eye that's causing the person to get flooded in Stonewall to begin with. Right? And vice versa. Well, I can't believe. Thank you, Chad, for saying that because my wife is always doing that kind of disrespectful language. Well, maybe if you would actually interact and say, can we talk about this later and actually do bring it up later, she or he would not keep pushing to say we've got to find resolution. So Jesus says the problem is not having complaints or judgment. It's that we do it with contempt. We need to start evaluating or judging in the same way we want to be judged. And that's Jesus' secret to dealing with these issues in our life. So what happens is now we start having this infrastructure that's got some holes in it. It's not as strong. So many of us don't know that these are the four things we need to work on. So instead of working on these, we say, well, tell you what, I know our marriage has got some trouble. Let's go on a vacation. right, so we have nicer vacations. And it's nice to have nicer vacations. I had a friend of mine, he was approaching midlife, and he and his spouse were having some difficulty, and they decided they couldn't figure out what the problem was. They need to build a new house together, a project. So they built a new house and had to make a thousand decisions about wallpaper, about kitchen, about cabinets. And they had a nice house. It was a really nice house. But all it did is bring out all of the holes in the bottom of their relationship. I know another couple approached midlife and they said, you know, we need we're, we're not so good at husband and wife, but we're really good as parents. Let's have another child. And so sure enough, they had another child. And again, child looked good, the house looked good, the vacations looked nice, and we start doing things we're trying to be helpful. Let's have some common interests. Hey, let's let's start uh, golfing together. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, except that it doesn't fix the holes that are broken underneath. And those are the pieces we need to get to the bottom of in order to fix the trajectory of our relationship. So four toddlers... And right now you're probably thinking, I know exactly what my son's problem is. I know exactly what my boss's problem is. I know exactly what my wife's problem is. I want you to stop looking at the spec. The only way you're going to fix what's broken is to say, what is my problem? How am I contributing to this? Once you figure out your toppler you can then begin to stop pulling them and start stacking them. Two ways to stack them. Number one, the research showed conclusively, no matter what differences you had, no matter what, neur- what neurosis you had, even what bad communication style you had, you could realign with friendship. If you ever play Jenga, there's actually a little piece of cardboard that comes with it. And the cardboard helps you when you restack it to, to, to reset all the edges up. You reset this piece of cardboard up, you get everything realigned. But the reoccurring theme we've mentioned all four weeks of the series has been building a friendship. So if you son and your daughter, and you're just having all kinds of problems with them, and you're always just, ran, 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 the best way to start going against this is to say, listen, I know we disagree, but can we start, just let's go out and have fun together, to build into your friendship during the difficult times. To say, listen, we're going through a difficult season, but I'm planning on being with you and being in a friendship with you for the next 30 years. Let's not blow 30 years by this disagreement. Because what will happen is, though you're still going to have disagreements, what, what Dr. Gottman calls positive sentiment override. That, while that conflict goes on, you say our relationship is more important than this one issue. So you realign, you stack them by realigning your relationships with friendship being a priority friendship but then the second thing we mentioned last week but I want to go into more detail this week is you got to make repair attempts to the holes that we punctured into each other through this kind of behavior that we've learned and we've practiced and unfortunately we're getting worse at Talked to a friend of mine couple they approached midlife like doing the empty nest thing and he was contemplating just saying you know what let's give it up He talked to a mentor friend of his and said, Listen, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know that you've sort of grown apart during these last years. The kids as teenagers, you both felt like taxi drivers. But if you will make this transition to begin to repair and rebuild your friendship, all the statistics show that the second half of marriage can be far better than the first half if you realign your relationship and if you work against these holes and habits. And they did that. I talked to him recently, and it's been seven years since I had that conversation. He said, I am so glad we did the hard work seven years ago. Our marriage, our relationships are better than ever. It's hard work, but it's worth it. Jesus talks about making repair attempts, and that's the second way we stack them. Repair attempts. Jesus says it this way. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're on your way to the temple or to the church, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled. First, you take the initiative to repair what's broken between you and your brother, between you and a friend, between you and a coworker. That, that, that God's priority is that we are people of repair attempts. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may not realize that the entire Bible is a story of a repair attempt, that our relationship with God got broken because of our contemptuousness. We thought we knew better than him. It got broken because of our defensiveness. It's not my fault. It's her fault. It's your fault. You shouldn't have given me this opportunity. If you knew I was going to rebel against you, why'd you give me free choice? Then we stonewall because God tried to seek us out and search after us. Instead, we said, no, I don't even know if I believe in you. Whatever you want, you don't want for my best. I know better than you. So the whole Bible is about a massive repair attempt from God to us. And if that message is true, and as you wrestle with that, You see, if God's willing to make a repair attempt with me, I've got to get serious about my repair attempts. And this message from Jesus addresses how the grace of God, God's repair attempt, addresses all four issues. That's what he says. Next verse. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you... And notice it doesn't say that you have something against your brother. I don't need any reminder to tell you who I'm mad at. I think about him all the time because I'm mad at him. But Jesus says the first step in reconciling with God is for you to think to yourself, does anyone else have something against me? Now think about that. What does that force you to do? That forces you to think about it from somebody else's perspective. This combats Defensiveness. Defensiveness is always about thinking about my perspective. That's not fair. You shouldn't say that. You didn't understand, right? But Jesus says the, the first way of getting reconciled with God when you go to altar is to say, wait a second. Is anybody mad at me? Oh, why would they have come to that conclusion? You don't agree with 100% of it. What part of it might be true? Oh, In fact, I was talking with a friend recently and uh We've got a group of friends, and, and one of the friends wasn't talking to this guy I was talking to. And I was reading this verse, and I said, you know what? Part of me says, set healthy boundaries. it's that person's problem, if they want to fix it, they'll fix it. But I was reading this verse, and it says, no, the ownership's upon you and I to try and reconcile with this friend who's mad at us. And so we made a plan to try and keep working with this person to rebuild our relationship. And, and you know, it got a, before I would have said, <laughs> the two of us would have said, well, you know what they said, you know what they did, you know how unfair that was? But this verse helped me reframe not being defensive, but being offensive and making a repair attempt. The second thing Jesus says here doesn't come against defensiveness, it comes against contempt. It says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar. Now, why do you, would you bring a gift to the altar? The very nature of relationship with God to the message of the Bible is that you have fallen short of your own standards and you've fallen short of God's standards. You know what that does? It kicks you off the pedestal superiority. Because contempt says, I would never do that. I would never say that. The Bible says you need a gift for the altar because you could have said that, given the right circumstances, given the right pressures. And that's what the grace of God does. It humbles you enough to go, you know what? Given the right time, I probably could have done something like that. And so instead of having contemptuousness like I'd never do it, you begin to say, hey, let's come against contempt, given the right pressures, the right day, kids pulling on me, pressures at work. Let's come at this equally humble and say, how can we work this thing out? so we don't hurt each other anymore. The second thing Jesus mentions here comes against not contempt, but comes against stonewalling. Look at the words, the action words. Leave your gift at the altar. Go your way. Go do something. You might say, well, I'm not good at that. Well, I know, but that's part of what's causing the problem. When you always stonewall, even though you you really internally are telling yourself, I'm trying not to make it worse, I'm trying to make it worse, nobody can hear your thoughts. Nobody can see your intentions. So part of what Jesus is calling us to is if you're a stonewaller, to say, listen, I don't want to blow up and hurt the person I love. But that is an excuse to not do anything. So if one answer is I'm going to talk right now in the midst of my emotions being flooded and I'm going to say something wrong, that's a bad choice, right? Well, nobody wants to get hurt. But maybe you want to come up with a better choice. And it's, okay, I know right now I'm flooded. But I like that term. I'm flooded right now. Can we revisit this? Tonight. But really revisit because if you're a person who likes to deal with conflict like I do, and the other person says they're going to deal with it and then come back to it, your anxiety goes up, doesn't it? So, one of the gifts you can give to your talking spouse or your talking employee is to say, Right now it's not a good time, but really revisit and come back and say, hey, listen, I was thinking about what you said, and it's going to start repairing the holes because you know what's going to happen when you do that? Here's what's going to happen to both of you. You're going to say, Well, this is new, right? New is good. Fear comes when it's the same old pattern. That's why Jesus' words are so practical. The last thing he says comes against the last piece, which is arrogant criticism. He says, go your way, leave, and then agree with your adversary. Agree with them. Trying to, to get to yes, if you've been through the negotiating book, get to yes. You want to find a way that it's not a, a no-no or a lose-lose. Let's find a way to agree together. What, what could work? Because usually in conflict it's, well, that won't work and that won't work. Yeah, but what could work? Jesus agree with your adversary lest it escalate. And look at at his escalation. If you don't agree or find a way to be agreeable, you'll get handed over to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer hands you over to the prison. And he's talking about how conflict, contempt, arrogant criticism, it escalates. Which is why Dr. Gottman found... That by listening to couples for three minutes, he could predict the divorce rate 91% after three minutes. Because what you do in this conversation escalates to the next conversation, which escalates to the next month, to the next year, to the next decade. But things could change. I sat down with a couple a few years ago. And if ever there was a case study in these four things, it was this couple. And I sat down and I said, do you want to live this way? What are you talking about? They didn't even know it. They were so used to this. This was like, they thought this was normal. I'm like, well, everybody around you feels horrible watching the two of you interact. I don't typically talk like this, but this is after years. I'm like, I mean, like all of us are drained watching this. I mean, every time a, a, a normal subject comes up, it's an excuse to pull out the bazooka. Boom! And, and all the rest of us like, oh, the shrapnel, and pulling the pieces out, dirty laundry about what you did 20 years ago and five years ago. Why do you keep living like this? It's what we know. Maybe you've got hurt or you know somebody who has hurt and you felt the shrapnel of this kind of thing. What I want to tell you is These are the four things you can work on that will change the relationship, any relationship. And the way you repair them is by making friendship realign. And number two, by making repair attempts specifically at this. And this is why the message of the Bible is so unique. The grace of God comes at this in a way that religion doesn't. Religion says, I'm going to be a good person and then God will accept me. It's all about me, 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 me. And then I start looking at people who aren't doing as much as me, and I'm like, oh, I'm better than them. The message of Jesus isn't religion, but it's not irreligion. The grace of God humbles you, so you don't have contempt. Then it exalts you, because God accepts you based on what His Son has done. And that message is so practical that it allows you to do exactly what Jenga said. Don't pull them. Do stack them. Have an incredible legacy with your relationships, but don't topple them. Of course, you can't play Django without a topple. So why should we do this? Why should we go about this? Because it is so much cheaper to do the things I've talked about than to watch things you care about fall over. It is so much cheaper to work with an employee. To work with, sorry about that. To work with an employee and to go through the hiring costs of someone new if it just requires some repair attempts. It's so much cheaper and emotionally better health-wise for you to make these repair attempts and to go through the devastating impact of divorce. So the question we want to ask ourselves today is, what brick do you and I need? You see, this kind of stuff, you think, well, Chad, you don't know what's happened to me. You know what's going on. You know how bad it is. It's just a disaster around here. But you can repair it brick by brick. So what's your brick? Maybe your first brick is to say, I'm going to start identifying my toppler. This is the thing I am doing that's affecting my relationship with my son. You say, you know what, it's my arrogant criticism. I'm not just complaining because I want the relationship to better. I am coming at this situation with arrogance. Like I would never struggle with things like this or do that. And that's my brick. Maybe for some of us, our first brick is to start a friendship with our kids and say, you know what, I've really not prioritized them because I've been so busy at work for the last five years. And I want to start with an apology, a repair attempt. Turn to my teenage daughter or son and say, listen, I know I've not prioritized our relationship. I hope it's not too late. Could we just, like, once every two weeks go out to a movie or go out for coffee? It might feel awkward at first, but let me know, I want to try. I want to try. Maybe that's my brick. I want to start rebuilding. Maybe for you, it's like the stonewalling thing I talked about. For you, it's saying, my brick is that when I get flooded, say, I will talk about it, but can you give me a minute? Or probably, can you give me an hour? And that small little act of impacting the issue of stonewalling is going to change the dance between you and your spouse. I don't know what your brick is. But here's what I know. Whatever's going on in your company, whatever's going on in your family, whatever's going on in your marriage, it can be rebuilt brick by brick. I had a disagreement recently with uh, some team members. And part of it was just difference of opinion, part of it was difference of personality. But we really had a a conflict of disagreement. In the midst of that conflict, I I could... I was worried that in the midst of disagreeing on the issues that we would disagree or hurt each other. So my repair attempt is I wrote personal letters to all the people that we had this disagreement with and just said, I want you to know that despite what we're disagreeing on in the situation, I still see what you've done. I still appreciate who you are. I still appreciate the strengths that you have. And I want you to know that our friendship's intact even as we're trying to work through this issue. I send these letters off and I'm telling you, it put a a new lens on the things we were disagreeing on. Because what Dr. Gottman found was fascinating. When you let these four things impact your your relationships, they don't just affect your present and your future. They actually work backwards and affect your past. Couples start remembering their past as worse than it really was. Tell me about your marriage, your happiest memory. I remember him flirting with the bridesmaids. I remember the food wasn't on time. That this kind of contemptuousness not only destroys your present future, but it works backwards to destroy your past. So decide today for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of money, for the sake of your mental health, for the sake of your relationships, that you're going to rebuild your life brick by brick with God's help. Well, maybe uh, today is a day for you to make a decision on one of those bricks. And I'm telling you, the message of the Bible is the power to be able to do it. You might say, well, I really want to do it. But it's probably going to last a few minutes, right? Maybe a day. Maybe by this afternoon, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the patterns. So I want to just give you a quick chance. That's some melancholy moment just to pray and say, God, I want that message of your repair attempt to me. And then tell him, what is the brick that you want to initiate this week? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the hope of repaying for the years the locusts have eaten, as you promised in the Bible. We want to rebuild brick by brick the pains and hurts in our life. Maybe you want to tell God just right now in your own words, say, God, I accept your repair attempt. And maybe you've done that before, say, God, help that repair attempt to become real in my everyday life. And God, today, this week, I commit to rebuilding. Tell them whatever the relationship is that you're going to commit to. And God, here's the brick I'm going to respond to. God, we thank you that you're a gracious God. We thank you that you're a repairing God. We thank you that you're here today to allow us to, to laugh and to have fun and yet also to be convicted and to learn and to push forward. God, we thank you that relationships can be so much better when we do it your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you a game that you can play at home that will help with this exercise. This particular game is called Memory Bank. This is, again, a way to not only rescue your present and your future, but also to rescue your past. So this is a a discussion game that you can have together. You can take that, use it with your sons, daughters, families. I know I catch people after service many times playing this at the local restaurants and stuff. So this is a game for you as you go through this process together. We want you to enjoy the relationships as you move forward. We're going to finish up our series next week with Ken Kington as he talks about how we use our words in the game of Scrabble. Thanks again.